Esther chapter number 8 with a message entitled, What a Difference a Decree Makes. If you remember, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been with uh, Esther and Mordecai and the king and Haman. And if you remember last time around, the title of the message was, What a Difference a Day Makes. And that day in the life of Haman really turned upside down, didn't it? And the very gallows that were prepared for Mordecai, he found himself being hung on. So, you know, it's a great day of rejoicing, I'm sure, for Mordecai and Esther. But the reality is that even though Haman is dead, the great enemy of God's people is dead, the threat to God's people still lingers. The decree that's given that in nine months' time or so, the people are to be exterminated, still lies. So even though Haman, the, 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 the focal point of that threat, has been taken away, has been dealt with, has, has, has got justice, if you want to call it that, has met his own uh, end by the way that he was going to uh, put Mordecai to death. Now, the focus is upon the decree. And the decree that was sent out was that the people were to be exterminated. So it's still looming. Haman was dead, but his murderous plan is still uh, alive. And that, you know, that pictures life at times. You know, there's some people that have gone to the grave, at whatever, you know, they've, justice has been carried out, whatever you want to call it. They served a prison sentence, and then they've, they've died and passed on, or whatever it may be. But the effects of their evil lies on and carries on. Long after wicked people have gone, the consequences of their evil words and deeds live on. As I've said, that innocent people suffer because of guilty people that lie in the graves. Victims of the atrocities, whatever it may be. I don't know if you've watched the programs you know, on um, Jimmy Savile. And the more you see about that man. And actually, the, the thing that shocked me, I think, um, and when you look at it, knowing that he's a predator... And you watch back, you look at it and go, that's as clear as day. It's as clear as day. But he was a deceiver. But the victims are still living with the hurt, living with the pain. And for these Jews, even though Haman's gone, that focal point of the attack upon them, they still have to live with this impending threat that in approximately nine uh, months' time, about 15 million Jews face death. Unless something or someone intervened, within nine months, the Jews would be gone. They'd be wiped out. Yes, a little victory had taken place. Haman has been put to the sword, as it were. But actually, in the war, they're facing impending doom. So make no mistake about it. The odds are overwhelmingly against God's people when we get to this point in Esther chapter number 8. But... I want you to remember this, and I've said this through, that with God is the majority, and it doesn't matter what the odds look like. If God is in it, he's in control. You can't do odds with God. He doesn't work like that. He doesn't work according to chance. He works according to purpose and order and sovereign control. And Esther and Mordecai have been brought to the kingdom for what? 
for such a time as this. So what we want to do tonight is we want to get into the count, we want to get into chapter number 8, and we want to unpack and see how things unfold. The first thing we want to look at is that there's a lamentation for the people. Let's pick up in verse number 1. Esther, chapter number 8. On that day did King Azarias give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther was told what he was unto her, or had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, gave it unto Mordecai. Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And Esther spake yet again before the king, and fell down at his feet, and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite, and his device that he had devised against the Jews. So here we find Esther continuing her intercession for the people. You know, she's pleading for the people. And, and, and I want you to notice that there is this cry out for her people. And I mean, that is a bit of a contrast from where Esther was at the start of the story. Because at the start of the story, Esther is very much disconnected from her people. She's living the, the, the royal life. She's in the king's courts, you know, oblivious of, uh, to what's going on on the street, disconnected from her people. And in fact, uh, as we look through the story at the start, she was purposely hiding that she was associated with those people. But now she's in a place where she's walked this walk of surrender. Whatever God has for me, I'm going to do. I'm going to step up to the mark. And she stepped up to the mark. Because of that, Haman's taken care of. And now she's walking as God will have her walk. And she now has this deep love for her people. There's this desire for her people that's coming out in her lamentation before the king in verse 13. So she fell down at his feet, besought him with tears. Now she's a heart for the people. Now she sees. Now she's had the blindness and the blinkers removed of the court and the royal life. She sees what's important. She sees her people before her. And she sees that her people are in desperate, desperate trouble. And, and the spiritual application that we can take from this as we move forward into church and us is that the more we walk with Christ, the more we'll have a desire for his people. The more time we spend with him... We'll see people as he sees them. And more time away from him. And we'll see people as just annoyances. Troubles and trials. And the people within the church, primarily I'm talking about, we're to bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. If we or develop a deep love for one another, ultimately, to do that well and to do that properly, we have to walk closely with Christ. And when we do that, we'll see others. So Esther is continuing this intercession for her people. Mordecai, he's now before the king in verse, verse 1 and 2 there. And again, he's been revealed. Everyone's out in the open. The relationship between Esther and Mordecai is no longer a secret. Now the king knows everything. Remember I said last time, Esther is all in. She's all in. Nothing hidden now. No secrets Nothing to keep, nothing to worry about, about slipping up and saying the wrong thing. Everything's out in the open. She's a Jew. Mordecai's her relation, all out in the open. And again, spiritual application, that's a beautiful place to be. 
to not have to have any secrets. It's terrible to carry secrets and burdens. But when they're all out there, when you're all in for God, and you don't care about these things, and you give them over to God, and you confess them, share them, whatever it may be, it's a great place to have your burdens lifted. And the Lord Jesus Christ could do that. He's absolutely willing to do that. So again, I said this this morning, I'll say it again tonight. Being in this place where they're all in for God was the safest place that they could be. And God's going to do wonders because he's an expert of bringing good out of bad. So here we have Mordecai. He's before the king. And then it says in verse 2 there that the king took off his ring, which he'd given to Haman and gave to Mordecai. This is authority. And this is a beautiful play in what's went on because it was by that ring that what? Haman made that decree. He had the king's authority. Now, it's gone to the very Jew that he tried to uh, kill. It's an irony to the maximum. But again, you know, despite the promotion of Mordecai, despite the news that Haman's gone, there's still this problem. The problem is the decree that's been made has been made according to what? The law of the Medes and the Persians. I mean, it can't be rescinded. It's still there. So Esther lays out her plea before the king with tears. She beseeches him. She besought him with tears. She's wailing before him for her people. She's desperate. In a desperate place, she throws herself before the king to do something for the people. So there's a lamentation for the people in verses 1 to 3. This leads us on to verses 4 to 6, where we see a love for the people. And again, this is born out of this walk. It's born out of this place where she's all in for God and she sees God's people. Look at what she says in verse 4 there. The king held out the golden scepter towards Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. And we've looked at what that golden scepter was. You know, that was the permission to come before the king. That scepter wasn't put forward, it was death. Verse 5, And said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Amathadath, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Notice it. My people, my kindred, my countrymen. There's a love for the people there. She's all in. These are mine. These are my people. After all those years of taking nothing to do with her people, really, living in the king's courts. Now, she's all in. She's finally realized how much her people mean to her. But what is it taking in this account? It's taking the threat of loss to make her realize how much her people mean to her. Now, we've seen death invade our ranks in the last few weeks. 
And when that does happen, and this is what I shared at Robert's funeral, it should focus us on time. Because here's something that we think we have, time. Like it's something that we have any control over. We don't. Time is a gift from God. And it's up to him how long our time is. But what happens whenever we lose someone or whenever we suffer loss or there's a threat of loss, it changes our perspective. We think about the one that's gone and think, maybe I should have done this and done that or spent some time here or spent some time there and now I won't get the chance. Friends, I want to urge you to love the people that you have in your life now and love them with a Christ-like love. I want to urge you to love the people in the church. Because here's the reality. Next Sunday, one of you might be gone. I don't know. And we do doom and gloom. I pray that doesn't happen, but the Lord, that might happen. And what good is it then? Oh, I wish I'd have got to know them more. I wish I'd have spent more time with them. I wish I'd have done this. I wish I'd have done that. You know, the lesson for time and memorial is that we don't have time. We cannot count on tomorrow. That's what the book of James says. You know not what tomorrow brings. Your life's but a vapor. Here, today, gone, tomorrow. What has it taken for Esther to realize how much her people mean to her? And how she should have been really identified with them long ago. How much does it take for us to realize how much people mean to us? To pour out love. To show them that we love them. Esther's gone through trials and now she's developed this deep love for her people. And you can see it through these verses in 4 to 6. There's a love for the people. She appeals to the king sincerely and earnestly. And he responds. And he's going to do his best to help. This leads us to a letter to the people. Look at verse 8 with me. Chapter 8. Well, let's read from verse uh, 7. Then King Azarias said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they shall have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you in the king's name, seal it with the king's ring, for it is writing which is written in the king's name, sealed with the king's ring, may no man reverse. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews, to the lieutenants, to the deputies, the rulers of provinces, which are from India unto Ethiopia, 127 provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing, according to their language. And he wrote in the king Azarias' name and sealed it with the king's ring, sent it by letters, by post and horseback and riders, mules, camels and young dromedaries. 
wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Upon one day, in all the provinces of King Azarus, namely upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people, that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the post that rode out upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shushan Palace. So the king's not willing to revoke the decree because he can't law the Medes and the Persians. But what he does do is he instructs that this uh, decree be put together. The royal scribes are called. A decree is written that grants the Jews a right to assemble and defend themselves against anybody that attacks them. So he can't say that this first decree is revoked. But what he can't say is that the Jews can be ready to defend themselves and in defending themselves they will face no further punishment from the ruler, the regime, the king. Not only were they allowed to defend themselves without fear of punishment, but they were also allowed to plunder uh, the possessions that they won in any of those battles. And then this decree is sent out, it's sealed by the king of the ring, by the hand of Mordecai. And again, the irony there shouldn't be lost on you because the first decree that went out was by the hand of Haman with the signet ring of the king. Now it's Mordecai, and he is in a place where he is allowed the authority, given the authority, second in command, to stand over this decree with the king behind him, and it goes out amongst the Jewish people. And there's a little bit of parallel here between Mordecai and Joseph, and how that God uses people to deliver his people. Joseph, we know... Um, Similar as, as a deliverer, but in Genesis 41, when you get onto the account that, that Joseph has risen to this uh, position of power, Genesis 41, verse 42, tells us that Pharaoh, after naming um, Joseph second in command, says this, he took off the ring from his hand and put it on upon Joseph's hand. So there's a parallel there between Joseph and Mordecai and how God is working through these men to deliver the people, rising them up to positions of power. And God does that in his sovereign will. He did it with Daniel, and he's done it with Mordecai uh, here. Other parallels is that the Israelites are exiles, living in a foreign land. Same with uh, Joseph and same with Mordecai. Both are threatened by the authorities. Remember, that was what was happening with Mordecai, he was going to be put to death by the authorities above him. But ultimately, they both rise to positions of power. So there's parallels in there. Both use their authority to secure the salvation of their people. So Mordecai is a picture of Joseph, but he's not as strong a picture as Joseph is of, of Christ. One of the greatest Old Testament pictures of, of Christ is, is Joseph. It's full of it. The imagery's everywhere. And Mordecai pictures Joseph a little bit, but Joseph takes it another level. Joseph was imprisoned because of his refusal to compromise his high morals. When well, we say, well, Mordecai had some of that. 
Joseph achieved his office. Hey, the supernatural gifts of God. How did Mordecai get his office? With a bit of wheeling and dealing. Joseph was used of God to deliver his people. Mordecai used of God to deliver his people. But Mordecai ultimately used Esther's beauty and cleverness. Joseph's a very unique story in the deliverance of the people of Israel. But the decree has been made. The stamp of approval has been put on it. It's going to be sent out that if anybody attacks the Jews as previously planned, that the Jewish people will be ready and under the law able to defend themselves without fear of prosecution or punishment. So we see things are turning around here, which leads us then to my final point as we wrap up chapter number 8. And we're going to see a light from the people. Look at verse 15 of Esther 8. It says, And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel, blue and white, with a great crown of gold, with a garment of fine linen and purple. Now the colours in there, we could spend time looking at that and looking at the cross and the gospel. We're not going to do that. You can do that in your own time. But the colours are important in scripture. Garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. And I love that. Now there's a change in the mood. There's hope. Hope. I was talking this morning with some folks and just talking about the general message is that, you know, it doesn't matter what people are, what, what, they, what they hold to. Atheism, you know, agnosticism, uh, Buddhism, Islam, whatever it is, humanism, people ultimately want hope. However they disguise it in their message, none of them are willing to say that without uh, a creator God, there is no hope. It's an illusion. But the people here have hope. And because there's hope, there's rejoicing. Now, there's still a battle ahead, possibly. It's not like the decree's been wiped away. They're still facing death, but now they have hope. And because they have hope, they can rejoice and what? Be glad. Be glad. Believer. Where's your hope? More importantly, what's your hope doing to you? This is the day that the Lord has made. What? We will rejoice. Be glad in it. Why? Hope. Hope. You see, this new decree has come. The celebration among the Jews. The darkness is lifting. Remember what it was before? Weeping, sackcloth and ashes, mourning, grieving. Now what's happened that this decree, now we have what? Rejoicing and gladness. Verse 16 says the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. The word that's used for light in the Hebrew is aura. I've told you this before. It means light manifested around. It's where we get the word aura from. You say somebody's got an aura, there's something about them around them. Lights up a room. 
first five books of the law, the Torah, it's a compound word of aura and a word for teaching. And that's what the Jews were to be, teachers of light. Where do, you, where do you think this whole symbology comes from, light of the world? That's what it comes from. Here they had light. They had an aura about them. The people of God were lit up in hope and in joy and in gladness. And look at the effect, verse 17. And in every province, in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and the decree came, the Jews had joys and gladness, a feast and a good day. Remember, feast of Purim comes out of all this. And many of the people of the land, what? Became Jews. Two things at play. It says, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. But also, I want to put to you that they seen their joy. They seen their aura. They seen their light. And what happens? People were attracted to it. Now, we want to think about this from a church application. We don't have to go too far to think about this. It's that Christians always give off an aura. <laughs> what aura do you give off? Is it Christ likeness? Is it rejoicing? Is it gladness? Or are you as miserable as the rest of the world? I know we have our moments. We all have our days. That's not, not what I'm talking about. But there's a difference between a moment and a day of miserableness and a lifelong aura. But if we're saved, if we're redeemed, if we have the Holy Spirit living within us and the fruit of the Spirit coming out of us, our aura should be one of what? Rejoicing, Gladness and joy. Joy. How many joyless Christians do you know? That should be an oxymoron. How can I be most miserable when I have a Savior who loved me and gave himself for me? I am blessed beyond measure. Now, don't get me wrong. As I've said, there's difficult days. But our life should be one that gives forth an aura of Christ. That people will be drawn, not to us, but to the light giver. We need to sing a sweeter song. And if you've ever studied or looked at any of the Greek myths, if you looked at Homer's Odyssey, and there's a story... Uh, about uh, Ulysses and he has to sail his ship I'm cutting this down and paraphrasing and he has to go past the sirens and the sirens were those creatures that could seduce men with their song and lead them to their death and Ulysses is, is warned and told that the way to get past these sirens was to um, put wax in the sailors' ears. Now, there's other bits of the story, but generally, the sailors get wax in their ears, and as they go past, they can't hear the song, 
And then that's used as a beautiful picture of, of temptation and blocking it out. And, 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 and that's good. Yeah, we want to block out temptation. But you go on in Greek mythology and you look at Jason and the Argonauts, if you know the story. And he has to go past the same sirens with their song. And cut a long story short, the way that he does it is that rather than blocking out, he has a musician on board that plays a sweeter song than what the sirens are playing. And the result of that is that the sailors aren't tricked and trapped and pulled by the song of the siren because there's a sweeter song being sung in the boat. And the beautiful picture that is for us is that in the world, we should sing a sweeter song. It's not necessarily about blocking it out and just huddling in here and keeping the light for ourselves. Remember, teaching light to all nations. That was the prerogative. That was the message. That was the command and the instruction that was given to the Jewish people. They failed miserably. They contained it. They blocked out the world and they didn't share the light. We as the church now are those that carry the light into the world. And when we get out there, here's what we have to do, folks. We have to sing a sweeter song. So that people aren't falling for the world and its falseness, but are attracted to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want to say to you tonight is we can't sing a sweet song when we've got a face, like whatever you want to call the rest of that. Where's the sweetness? Where's the attraction? How many people are coming up and going, what, what, what is it about you? There's something about you that's different that, that, that I don't have. What is it? Your answer, Christ in me. You got to sing a sweeter song. And do you know what? You do that consistently, people will see it. People will see it. But if we leave this place and we go out into the world and we're of men most miserable... We're singing the same song the sirens are singing. We need to have a sweeter song. So the Jews now here have light. They're lit up with gladness and joy and honor. And verse 17 tells us that it goes out and people respond to it. They see the light. But then also it says that people became Jews for the fear of of the Jews fell upon them. Now this brings me back to Joshua. Brings me back to Rahab. Well, have, turn with me there. Yeah, we've got time. Joshua chapter 2, verse number 9. Joshua 2 and verse number 9. It's Rahab's words. And she spoke to the spies in Jericho. And she said unto the man, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, that your terror has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you, for we have heard that how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that are on the other side of the Jordan, Shion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt, Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and earth beneath. 
I'm Esther 9, there's a fear, a reverence for Jehovah God because the people watching from a distance see the supernatural hand of the sovereign God with the people of God. It's evident in that nation. For Rahab, the same thing, evident in that nation. Today, you want to see proof for a God. Jehovah is his name. Look at Israel as a nation. And you will see. There's a famous story in which Kaiser Wilhelm I of Prussia, he asked Otto von Bismarck, can you prove the existence of God? Bismarck replies, the Jews, your majesty, the Jews. You look at the history, we're reading the history of the Jewish people. These are historic facts. They're not stories. They're not made up. These are historic facts. This is a book of religious history of the Jewish people. It doesn't tell us all history, but it tells us religious history, and it tells us the history of the Jewish people and how God was with them. But if you don't believe that, then go forward and look fast forward and just go on Google and look at Israel in recent history and see how God is with them. Six-day war, for example. Let me read you an account from there. Miracle after miracle. The Jews call it the finger of God. We call it the hand of God. But really, it's a sovereign God looking after his people. And time and time again, God has intervened in the life of that nation. Remember, the world has tried to exterminate the Jew. Time and time and time and time again. The world hasn't succeeded. Why? But God, but God. Let me read you the account of this Six-Day War. 1967, Egypt began moving large forces and heavy artillery to the Sinai Desert. Next, Egypt closed the Straits of Tehran to Israeli ships and anyone bringing any military equipment to Israel. This was an act of war. When Egypt, Syria, and Jordan formed a pact and placed their militaries on high alert for war, it became clear that conflict was inevitable. 200 Israeli Air Force planes were dispatched towards Egyptian air bases and should have been shot down. Though flying low to avoid being detected by Arab radar sites, our Jordanian radar facility was able to detect the unusual amount of aircrafts approaching in the sea. Jordan quickly sent out a message to its ally, uh, Egypt, with the word Inab, it's code for war. Miraculously, though, the Egyptian coding frequencies were changed the very day before and Jordan had not been updated in the change because obviously they want to keep their communications protected. So that message didn't get through. Still further, Egypt's anti-aircraft ammunition was sufficient enough and it should have been able to destroy all the Israeli planes that were attacking. But miraculously, for some unknown reason, for some unexplainable reason that the Egyptians to this day cannot explain, the order was not given to launch any of those missiles at Israeli aircrafts. Israel accomplished their mission, took down half of the Egyptian Air Force, 204 Egyptian planes, majority were in the Sinai Desert, getting ready to attack Israel. This changed the course of the war. What's going on there? The hand of God. The hand of God. 
Now, if that was just one isolated thing, you could say, well, that was just a lucky day. But when we step back and we look at the history of God's people, we see that it's not a lucky day, it's a sovereign God. There's evidence. So when God's people walk in God, when God's people show light of God, it's testimony to God and of God. And when people see that, they see something different and they're drawn. They're drawn. That brings us to personal responsibility. Because we can shine as a church. You know, we can get in here together on Sunday and we can sing, we can open them doors, people can hear us. People in the village know there's quite a few people come in and out of that church, there must be something going on there. We can shine as a church. But that doesn't remove our responsibility to shine as individuals. We're to teach light, we're to show light, we're to have an aura about us. Billy Sunday, I love Billy Sunday, but he said this, the evangelist. If you have no joy in your religion, there's a leak in your Christianity. It's true. If as believers we manifested more joy of the Lord, perhaps those outside the faith will be more attracted to the one that gives us our faith. But here for the people... There's certainly a light from the people once again. They're rejoicing together. So this chapter began, chapter number eight, verse number three there, with Esther, what? In tears. Tears of sadness. But it ends with the Jews rejoicing, feasting. They're showing light. They're rejoicing. There's gladness. What has made the difference? What has changed the tears into joy, the heartache into laughter? It's the second decree. And this decree is one that brings rejoicing. Now, here we have, in chapter number eight, a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because here's the first decree. The first decree is one of doom. That we're all sinners, each and every one of us. Romans tells us, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. All of sin that comes short of the glory of God. The first decree from God to us is condemnation. The wages of sin is death. But what a difference a decree makes. Because just like in the story of Esther, another decree comes. And just like in the story of Esther, as the golden scepter is lifted, that it's not death, that it's life. It's the same when the gospel message comes in. Because it's the second decree. It's the one where God sent his only begotten son, John 3.16, to save us from our sins. That's where the joy comes. That's where the rejoicing comes. That's where the gladness comes. I want you to know that tonight, church. You were dead in your sins. Without hope. But God. And the second decree comes. God sent forth his son. God commanded his love towards us. While we yet sinners. 
Christ die for us. What a beautiful picture of the gospel that's going on. The people are taken from sadness to joy, facing death to having hope of life. But for us, it's so much more that we were dead in trespasses and sins, separated from God, but we don't enter, enter into possible hope of life. We enter into definite eternal life. There's no doubt with God. We know that if we know him, we're safe, we're secure forever, that we can never be separated from the love of God. My goodness me, if that doesn't bring joy and rejoicing to your soul, then I don't think you truly understand your salvation. If it doesn't thrill your soul that those very words I've said, that you've been taken from darkness and translated into light, that you've been forgiven from your sin, that you've been set upon a rock, and God loves you eternally and he'll never let you go. If that doesn't lift your heart, I wonder if your heart's truly his. If we understand what a difference the decree makes. For the people of God in Esther chapter number 8, they understood they had hope and that brought light and life and joy. If you sit here tonight and you know the Lord Jesus is your saviour, it should bring you hope and light and life and joy. And that aura should be reflected when we go into a world that's full of hopelessness. As we walk past people that are stuck under the first decree, the condemnation of God, we have their freedom. We have their new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to show it to them. Folks, what a difference a decree makes for the people of God. They now have hope. For us tonight, what are we doing with our hope? If you're here tonight and you don't have the Lord Jesus, you don't have hope. But the good news is that hope's available for anyone that would come on to the Savior through repentance and faith. But folks, let's live out the Christian life. Tomorrow, let's all of us, and I'm including myself in this, let's not get bogged down by the miseries of life. But let's show the world the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's sing a sweeter song so that people will come to know him. Let's pray.